Podcast One. It's so subtle that customers don't even notice the marketing that's being done to them. That's how today's guest describes brand licensing, or as he calls it, invisible marketing. And he's amazed that more business owners of all sizes don't make use of it. It's a spooky episode 509 of the award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. Yeah, I say, welcome to a small business marketing show, where successful small business owners share their souls. To take your marketing straight to the lead, now here's your host, Mr. Tim Bowie. And welcome back to your weekly dose of unseeable marketing. I'm your host, Timbo Reed. You infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner and you are so ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And if that's not enough and you are itching to fast track your marketing, then let's get personal with a one-on-one coaching session, which you can book right now over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Big episode today. Licensing expert Jeff Lottman joins us all the way from the City of Angels to explain why more businesses of all sizes should be making use of brand licensing agreements or invisible marketing, as he likes to call it. This week's Monster Prize Draw winner has absolutely nailed their pitch. And I let you in on next week's guests whose successful plumbing business hit rock bottom only to rise from the ashes to the point where founder Andy works one hour a week. Who doesn't want a bit of that? As per usual, team, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ. So let's get stuck right in. If I suggested you should consider brand licensing as a way to grow your business, you would probably run a mile, thinking it meant slapping your logo on a second-rate product or letting a third party run amok with your precious brand. Well, today's guest is here to debunk those limiting beliefs. You see, Jeff Lottman is an expert in brand licensing and the founder of Global Brands, which happens to be the world's leading brand-focused agency boasting, how's this, over $5 billion, that's with a B, dollars in retail sales. He's also the author of a new book called Invisible Marketing, a hidden tool for connecting with consumers through licensing. Now, with every business owner looking for an edge, Jeff believes this area of marketing remains very much unexplored. In fact, he says it's almost invisible. So through some real-life case studies, he's going to reveal the power of licensing and how it can create new entry points for new customers to discover your precious, precious business. And if you think licensing is just for the top end of town, think again. As Jeff cites some examples of smaller businesses winning with some smart licensing strategies. Hey, as an aside, as this, Jeff also owns one of LA's most well-known fashion houses in Fred Siegel, which actually happened to dress Elvis back in the day. So we talk about how he's growing that as well. Here's Jeff explaining the concept of invisible marketing. The idea of invisible marketing is that people don't really understand what licensing is. And in its truest sense, because when it works, it's sort of ubiquitous. You don't even realize who's making the products. So people think the actual brand owners make the products, where in the fact, 
there are other manufacturers that are using their IP or their brand. Okay, so essentially invisible marketing is licensing. Explain why have you given it the name invisible marketing? Because again, people don't really see it, is that people don't understand it. And I think that it's the probably one of the best ways to from a manufacturer standpoint to build a brand, or if you're a brand owner, it's a great way to expand your brand and your awareness at basically someone's paying you. So there's truly no cost. If anything, this could potentially be profit. It, it seems really expensive and really complicated. Coming at it from a, a smaller business owner, uh, and I assume the majority of business owners do shy away from licensing or invisible marketing. Is that why? Maybe, but it's really pretty easy. And if you don't, I can explain some of the larger deal points and make it simple to understand if you want me to. Mate, we love simple around here. You know what we love? We love simple and we love a step-by-step process that allows us to implement an idea that's going to grow our business. So, mate, go for gold. I know you've got some case studies and you've got a sort of step-by-step process. So why don't you give us some case studies around invisible marketing to give us a sense of what it does look like? Sure. I'll give you a perfect example. So Crock-Pot, which is a slow cooker, it's a very big brand here in the United States, has been around probably since 1950, maybe even earlier. And the thing with crock pot or any slow cooker is they're always sold in what they call the electric aisle. Things like with microwaves and toasters and steamers and all those things. And you see them by the carload and they basically all compete on price with not that many differences in terms of product. Crock pot's been around the longest, but at the same time, there's a lot of people that are out there trying to take their market share. They approached us because they wanted to have us to find a way to break out of that market and find new customers. And we looked at creating food that could be used in the crock pot as a way of supplementing the crock pot. But more importantly, is it took the crock pot out of the electric aisle and it actually put it in the food aisle because then they were able to sell the food products with the crock pot. And then P.S., there's no competitors around there because no one else is on that shelf. They basically get an end cap, which is their product and their branded other product, be it seasoning or ingredients. We did a couple things, both refrigerated and frozen. And those are the things that really were a difference. And they loved it because again, now no one has, no one is only looking at one thing, that brand. There's no competition whatsoever. And that's where I say it's invisible. Nobody understands who makes it. I imagine Crock-Pot aren't making spices. So how do, where do they come from and what's that process look like? Sure. You're hundred percent right. And that's where manufacturers come from that make those products. If you're a manufacturer, small or medium or otherwise, it's hard to get market share. And you could put a product, you could say Jeff Spice, which obviously that, you know, maybe someone would find my name to be valuable, but probably not. Or if you took the name of Crock-Pot and use it on the spice, the chance of getting on shelf is quicker, but you're like, wait a minute, obviously I just can't do that. And of course you can't because it's owned by somebody else. But most brands will license their IP, their intellectual property, in this case, the Crock-Pot name and logo, that then you can use on their product. And it's really, honestly, it's a relatively simple process. What happens is you pay them a royalty. So the way it works is there's, there's retail sales and wholesale sales. So let's look at that spice, for example. Let's say that thing sells for $6 for a jar of spice, which probably then sells for about $3 wholesale to the supermarket themselves they buy it for. You're going to end up paying somewhere between 4 and 5% or call it $1.20 to $1.50 to Crock-Pot for the right to use their brand on your product. And this way, then that's what they're getting as a wholesale sale. And along the way, so you're going to pay them a piece of that as a, as a royalty. That's the simplest part of it. Is it important that the Spice brand be recognized or they simply white label it for, for Crock-Pot to come and put their brand on their product? 
That's a really good question. You can do what they call mono-branded, which is what this was. It's a fully branded crockpot-only product, and that's all you see. Or if you're a spice brand and you're also trying to build your brand, you could say crockpot by Jeff Seasonings, and this way then I get to build my brand equity and also crockpot. But honestly, what you'll find is, and especially in a lot of those cases, it's stronger to be mono-branded, only the brand itself. And also you find that there are a lot of guys that are the private label guys that sell to supermarkets and retailers. And it's hard to get shelf space. And more importantly, it's hard to stay on shelf because someone can come in and compete on price. But if you have a brand and you build an audience, nobody can knock you out. And that's another really important part. And we find some of the best potential partners are those guys. They're the private label guys who are manufacturers who supply some of the bigger retailers that you know of under their brand name. And they're like fed up with it because... Again, someone could toss them out for half a buck less, you're gone. I imagine there is upside to having the brand that you're licensing. Now, let me get this right. So the licensing brand is the Spice brand. Uh, Crockpot is wanting to buy that license. If the Spice brand, for example, is a really good brand, in, in Australia, I think the best supermarket spices are Master Foods. I don't know whether that's the same over there, but Master Food Spices. So if, it, if it's Master Food Spices brought to you by Crockpot, then aren't you getting a double whammy of two great brands coming together and you're going to go, well, that's an awesome combination. I'm not going to be let down. I'll buy it. Again, that's what when they call dual branding. And in a case like Master, Master Food, or in our case, it would be McCormick, which is probably one of the biggest spice companies here in the United States, they would actually say, we want it under our brand because let's face it, people trust McCormick. And now it's like, oh, look, McCormick is doing a line of crockpot products. And now it's got both, it's got the trust of McCormick and it has the value of, oh, I get to use this in my crockpot. And that's when a dual branded product really makes sense. And in terms of cost, and we're going to go through some other case studies, by the way, listeners, but in terms of cost, dual brand versus single brand, is a dual brand partnership more of a contra? I'll lend you my brand and I'll put my brand on your brand and we're even and we'll share the spoils versus the single brand where the single brand pays a license fee to the other brand. Is that how it works or... Well, it's, it's actually, first off, let's just be very clear, there's a little bit of mistake because it's not Crock-Pot isn't paying McCormick or Master Food. Master Food is actually going to pay Crock-Pot for the right to use their brand on their spices because they're hoping to gain shelf space. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Now, mind you, the difference between dual branded or mono branded, I've never really seen much of a difference in terms of, um, in terms of the royalty rate. It's pretty much the same because, again, that manufacturer, the spice guy, wants to build his market share And he's coming to me, the owner of Crock-Pot, to use my brand on his product. I imagine there is a downside, potential downside that you'd need to really manage, which is if you license, if you associate yourself with a brand that ends up letting you down, if those spices, for example, are no good, then that makes Crock-Pot look bad, right? A hundred percent. And that's a really good point because finding the right partner as a brand owner is critical because the last thing you want is a guy who doesn't have the right kind of quality control products, or all of a sudden the spices they produce is potentially making someone sick, or maybe there's some um, some ingredients that aren't necessarily true to the labeling, and that could also hurt Crock-Pot. So it's very important to find the right partner because the last thing you want to do is align yourself as a brand owner with someone that can also hurt your brand. But there's protections in the agreement to, if that happens, how to get out of that agreement and so on and so forth. But let's face it, it's still going to hurt your brand. No doubt. Let's look at some other case studies, Jeff. California Pizza Kitchen. Yeah, it's a great it's a great case study for a lot of reasons because honestly, when California Pizza Kitchen first did it, there was tremendous adversity to taking a restaurant brand 
and actually selling it in a supermarket. So like, wait a minute, I have franchisees. The California Pizza Kitchen doesn't own all the California Pizza Kitchens. And even if it did, they're not necessarily going to want to take sales away from those individual restaurants. They really felt that there was a different dining occasion, that when you walk into a supermarket, you're not in the supermarket saying, what restaurant am I going to tonight? You're going in to plan your meal for the week or for a couple of weeks, or I'm going to buy some stuff when I don't want to go out and do that. And they realized it very much is a different meal occasion. And not only that, it actually increased the market share and the restaurant sales went up because people are like, oh my God, this is really great pizza. I'd love to see what it tastes like in the suit in the restaurant. And they're like, oh, there's the California pizza kitchen. I tried it in the supermarket. And the quality of that frozen pizza at the time was really head and shoulders above other frozen pizzas. Because before that, frozen pizzas were kind of like cheap, down and dirty. You like, you put the sauce on, put the cheese on, you froze it. It was just okay. And, and it just filled your belly and you really didn't care. They were really the first elevated pizza. So the very first true gourmet pizza with like, you know, barbecue chicken pizza, which at the time was sort of unheard of. And they just nailed it and continue to. They sell an awful lot of pizzas. They ended up, the business got so big that I think um, uh, Nestle now bought the actual, they were, Nestle was the manufacturer. It was making so much money that Nestle bought California Pizza Kitchen out of the agreement. So they don't have to pay a royalty anymore. And now Nestle owns the rights to make pizzas specifically in the freezer aisle, which is crazy. Let me understand that license agreement. So in in your part of the world, California Pizza Kitchen is a a fast food franchise that I would go to with the family. Like a McDonald's. Like a McDonald's. So they've gone, well, we should be selling our pizzas in the frozen section of the supermarket. That's the decision that was made at California Pizza Kitchen HQ. And they have gone, have they gone and licensed Nestle? They did to a manufacturer. Well, Nestle is actually a big manufacturer of a lot of things besides chocolate. And they make other frozen pizzas already. So they were in the frozen pizza business. They already have a pizza manufacturing plant, but they were in that lower tier business. What I'm not getting, Jeff, is that the pizzas that I would have at California Pizza Kitchens are not the same as I would have if I bought their branded pizza frozen. Isn't that weird? It is a little weird. And you could say, well, how come it's not going to be, then where's it going to be the same kind of quality? And how is it going to be, isn't it going to possibly affect the supermarket, the retail store? Actually, it doesn't. Because first of all, people realize it's a frozen pizza. And a frozen pizza in a supermarket is a frozen pizza in a supermarket. There's a certain level of expectation. But the beauty was, it was better than any other frozen pizza at the time in a supermarket. So it still was that higher perceived value and it actually it produced a quality product. But people know that when they went into California Pizza Kitchen to have their salads and pizza, that it clearly was a better fresh made product. And so then what happened, you're saying, is that this was such a successful license agreement that Nestle have gone, hey, California Pizza Kitchen, we want to buy you out. We're tired of paying your royalties. We're going to write you a big check and leave me alone. Right. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah, that's a nice thing. That's a nice thing to have happened because I bet you that was a really big check. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, okay, this is what this is a case study. I don't know anything about, but I love the name. I can't see the association. Flintstones Vitamins. Now, Barney and Fred were not the fittest or healthiest blokes going around. So, how's this a great brand association and licensing agreement? You know, it's crazy. Is that in my mind? Look, I'm I'm an old guy. I mean, I'm 59 years old. But as a kid, I grew up with Flintstone vitamins. They've been around at least in the United States forever, and they were like the first vitamin that parents were able to get their kids to take right. because they were eating little Barney or little Fred or little woman. And of course, they were fruit flavored because it was sugar, and people fed their kids sugar back then. And that's where the thing started. But it's been around forever, and it literally is, of course, based on the Flintstone cartoon. 
um, and they've been selling Flintstone vitamins. It's just kind of cool. I always reference it because at least here, everyone knows Flintstone vitamins. And the biggest frustration for me is that no one understands licensing. It's the, you know, when I'm out in a, in a party or a bar meeting friends, what do you do? I don't tell them I'm in licensing because it's too confusing. I just say I'm in marketing or I'm in branding. Well, you can say oh, you're in invisible marketing now and that'll have completely... Right. Now I'm in just invisible. Tell me more about that frustration because I can sense it. Oh my God. It's it's so strong in so many ways. I was just going to say, you know, I don't know what episode number this will be, but it'll be in excess of 500 episodes uh, and I haven't had a licensing discussion and uh, there's probably good reason for it. And your frustration is proof that, you know, more... And I want to get this conversation back to small business, and we'll do that. The next the, the next case study involves Ford, but then we'll kind of go back down the ladder. But yeah, what 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 is the frustration? You just think, hey, there is money to be made here, small business owners. Would you please listen to me? Well, the thing that's crazy is that, um, and let me talk big business, then I'll talk small business. But in the case of a large company like Ford or even Crackpot, companies that are really significant businesses they're really concerned about how much money we're making in royalties, like how much money are those manufacturers paying them. And it's crazy because when you think about media and you think about advertising and TV and radio, everyone's competing for the same share of mind. It's very hard to break out. And on top of it, it's what I call a third wall because you can't really break it. But with marketing, with light, with invisible marketing or licensing, you're manufacturing a product that someone can hold in their hand and they can work with it, they can wear it, they can eat it in the case of pizza. So you're developing a very close relationship. And how incredible is that? And on top of it, potentially you're finding it in a place you don't find the original product. In the case of Crock-Pot, where they were found in the electric aisle, now they're being found in the food aisle. In the case of um, uh, uh, Flintstone vitamins, you know, you're finding them in the, in the vitamin aisle. It's those really opportunities. Ford Power Tools. So that's really cool. We represented Ford for a long time, and, and I love that brand. My, it's just a, uh, it's just a really great American brand, and they're, they've actually been around for a long time in terms of licensing. It's something they've, they were one of the early people in it because they started off licensing the toy cars, doing miniature toy cars like Mattel and Hot Wheels. That's really where that really started many, many years ago, and then it grew into it. And because that program has been around for a long time and handled by various agents, we're given the opportunity to work with it. We're trying to figure out what can we do that no one else has done? Where can we really find something that was really unique? But we try to look at things a little differently and try to figure out, it starts off with who is the customer that we're trying to go after? Like, who are you trying to go after? So you think about Ford, the real brands for Ford is Mustang and truck. That's their really two bands. And the thing that's crazy is those are both lifestyle brands. They're not it's not just a car. It's very much a way of life. When you drive that Ford truck and you're out there, you know that it's dependable and you can trust it and it's going to be solid. When you drive that Mustang, you're having a great time. You're barreling down the road and so on and so forth. It says a lot about you. It's incredible when you have a chance to work with a brand that has that kind of lifestyle, that kind of passion with people. So when you think about Ford and Mustang and you say to yourself, what do they do? They love to work on their cars. They love to, you know, they like to create, you know, man caves. And at the time, man caves were just starting to really become big. And man cave is when you take a garage and you clean it up and you're in a lot of crap and you sort of make this really cool space. So we said, you know what? There should be flooring with Mustang. There should be storage for Mustang. And then, of course, there should be hand tools for Mustang. And once we're able to prove that those worked, the next step, of course, was power tools, which then came into it. Then also we did power washers and generators and all these things really supported that man cave strategy, including like fan art and, 
you know, neon signs and, you know, bar stools and all those things that you would expect to find in a man cave. All the things that you can't have anywhere else in the house goes in the man cave. So tell me, uh, before we get into the step process of how a smaller business can embrace invisible marketing, Jeff, have you got an example uh, of a business or a licensing agreement that failed? Oh, my word. Sure. There's, there's many that have failed. And it's a lot of times, you know, for a lot of different reasons. I'll tell you something. When I first started the company, there's a brand called um, Elite Modeling. They were one of the founders and still out there in modeling in a talent model agency. So if you want to hire a model, there's a couple firms that do that. Elite has been around and still is around. And in Europe, they've done a great job licensing out their brand with hair care and things like makeup and nails and um, leggings and socks and all that. So it has a really successful program. And we met with them. And this was like my first client and, and like, Oh my God, I really want to represent you. And I really think we could do something with it. And we could not get shot. We could not get a deal for love or money. We even did like, look, I'll give you a no advance, no guarantee deal, which is when you do a license agreement, normally you pay some money up front, and then you also guarantee X amount of dollars. And I can explain that more in a minute, but we even offered none of that, just straight royalty only. And for some reason, it just didn't click here in the United States. We're in Europe. It clicked really good. Another example is this a great brand here in the U.S. called Duraflame. And they are like this, this log, this artificial log that you put in your fireplace. And it's a great, great, great company, great brand. And they own that. They own that category. They're the category killer in that really specific niche. And you think about it, at a party, you see these chafing dishes. And underneath the chafing dishes, there's this little can, this can of blue liquid that you light underneath it to keep the food hot underneath it. Well, here in the United States, we call that sterno. I don't know what they call it in Australia, but it's, it's, but it's, it's, again, it's another niche, but someone wanted a course to create door flame, little gas pod things. And you think makes perfect sense. Door flame means fire. It means heat. It means safety, so on and so forth. It just died. It just didn't work. And sometimes things just don't work. And then some things you never think would work explode too. It's just crazy. I've I've worked on them all. Okay, so let's talk about a process, Jeff, uh, as to how a smaller business can embrace licensing, can embrace invisible marketing. Should we choose a category or you're going to talk generally? Well, let's talk generally and let's look at both sides of the equation. Let's look at from a brand owner and let's also look for a manufacturer. Let's talk about a first from brand owner. So if you have a small business and maybe you've done a really great job building up your brand and people really know who you are and it could even be, you could be, you could be a beverage brand. Let's say you make a really great unique beer that is really well known, but it's really known in one, even one region. Maybe it's really well known in Melbourne. It's not yet known in, in Adelaide or it's not known in Sydney. Which, which is happening more and more. The craft beer market is huge. I don't know about exactly. America, but in Australia. So yeah, okay, got it. So now you're thinking to yourself, well, I really want to break into a new market. I really want to move my brand to another, you know, to another territory. Um, the great thing is you could then take that and find someone potentially that would want to license your brand and use that into other products. In the case of beverages or alcohol beverages, salty snacks are sort of uh, uh, makes perfect sense, like chips and nuts and pretzels, things like that, that are flavored with your beer. Uh, we represented um, Guinness, which of course everyone's heard of. It's a great beer. And we did beer battered shrimp and we did a couple other products with them because it has a very unique flavor. So as a small business owner, if you're trying to move that brand or if you're just trying to protect your brand because everyone else is trying to come after your beer category, if you can start creating some of these tangential products that are out there that still support true who do you are, it's a way to fight off the competition. 
So that's now from the brand. Okay, so let's just just pause there. Used a big word, tangent, tan. You know what I'm saying? Tangential. Tangential. I was yeah. going to say ta- tangential, but that would be completely <laughs> inappropriate. And I wouldn't do that on this show. Uh, it sounds like the first step or the first question to ask as a brand owner is, what are the people buying from me also buying that is associated with what I provide them? Exactly. We, we talk about what we call concentric circles, which is a fancy word for, you know, what are the people that that I, of the customers that I'm selling to and what, and what do they really get and what makes perfect sense. So when you think about this, you know, this, this, this beer that we're talking about, there's going to be this special kind of flavor or aroma or um, something that really is unique. Well, that's the kind of things you start thinking about. How can I connect with products that would best leverage those elements? Cause that's how this is going to work. And then you have to go out and find manufacturers Question, Mr. Lotman. So I've had a guest on this show who is a small business owner and they were called the Good Crisp. They are called the Good Crisp Company. They're like, um, not pretzels. What are those funny, what are the chips in the container, in the tube? Um, Yeah, Pringles. Pringles. The ones that are artificial. Yes, the first artificial chip. Yeah, Pringles. (laughs) You got it. So the Good Crisp Company is like a Pringles and they were taking them on. Now, this is a small business. Now, what if he's had a thought, I'd like to create a a chip flavour that tastes like Nando's Perry Perry Chicken. Okay. As a small business owner, if I own the Good Crisp company, I'm going to be thinking, geez, even ringing Nando's, they're huge. Who do I speak to? It's going to be expensive, uh, too hard. It actually isn't. And, and in the case of like, um, I'm sure you have the rooster sauce, the sriracha, right? I'm sure you have that done. Yes. This is a perfect example because sriracha chips has actually gone out and people actually have licensed that flavor profile. And there's a perfect example where if the guy who's your crisp guy that would want to do a, you know, either a Nando or a Sriracha flavored, for example, it really isn't. Most of these brands are very approachable because again, they really want to expand their brand. And normally you would approach the, either if there's a chief marketing officer or the brand manager would be the first place that I would go if I'm coming. So if I'm trying to find a brand that I want to use on a manufactured product, that's the place I go. You don't approach the CEO or the CMO. Usually you try to find a brand manager or the, um, the chief marketing officer or someone in marketing. And I'll tell you something. I find, and I'm sure LinkedIn's got to be very big in Australia also, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that- We've even got electricity down here, Jeff. <laughs> I wasn't sure about that. No, <laughs> the, thing is that, the thing that's incredible is if I sign, and I do this a lot, if I send a blind email to someone who doesn't know who I am, my response rate will be the normal, whatever it is, 2 3% of I'm lucky. But if I send something on LinkedIn and I'm really short and very pithy, like truly no more than three or four lines, because I don't have time to read a 30-line LinkedIn email, people will get back to me, I would say, at a 30 or 40% response rate. It's really incredible. So I would find that in that case, if I was a Chris company, I would go on LinkedIn and see who those people were that worked there. And I would target one or two of those and say, just short and brief, hey, I'm one of the top Chris guys company in, in Australia and I really want to use your product for a flavor profile. Can we have a conversation? That's all it has to be. And the odds are really high they're going to get back to you. You'd be surprised because why not? Okay, so putting aside the limiting belief that, geez, dealing with Nando's, dealing with Sriracha, dealing with any big brand that I would like to attach to my brand is going to be expensive. Let's put that aside. Where's the rate card? Like, how do we know how much licensing costs? It's a piece. It's how long's a piece of string question? No, actually, it really isn't because what they're going to ask of you is the very first thing they're going to want to know is, okay, 
how many crisps are you going to sell with my brand on it? So they're going to say to you, give me a three-year business plan. Put together projections of how many you're going to sell. And look, the first year is always a slower year because you're starting to get into market. you got to build market share. The second year, you're starting to really get, get the traction. The third year is when it really starts to click along. So they're going to want a business plan to see how many units you're going to sell and how much wholesale dollars you're going to sell of those crisps. And from that, again, we talked about that they're going to expect to then see how much royalty I can make. So in this case of discussion, let's just say you were going to do a million dollars worth of wholesale chip sales. And, um, and at 5%, that's a $50,000 that would be paid in royalty. Normally what you would do is you would offer one third of that 50 as the guarantee. So let's say you'd offer, call it $16,000-ish as a guarantee. And the reason you want to do one third, because you want to make sure that if things don't go great, that you've covered that guarantee because you owe that money. The guarantee means that you're going to promise to pay that money. So normally what we recommend, and we tell the also manufacturers the same thing, be conservative, make sure you really can make it because I want to see you earn more than your guarantee because I don't want to go bring another guy out there to, to build my business. I really want, if I'm going to think that you're the guy, I want you to do it. And then of that, call that 15, $16,000. They're going to want some of that as an advance. And normally a third of that goes in advance. So you would probably say, look, I'll give you $5,000 against call it a $15,000 guarantee. And I expect that I'll sell $50,000 with a royalty or a million dollars of wholesale crisp over the next three years. And it's really that simple. And it's, um, it's a really simple formula. Now, every category has different royalty rates. Apparel tends to be higher at 10%. Food tends to be the lowest with electrics, also household electrics like Crock-Pot is also in that 3 or 4%. So food is between 3 and 5% um, royalty. Um, again, apparel is highest. And of course, if you're Pixar and you have the next Frozen, you can get 13 or 14 or 15% because everybody wants it. No doubt. Jeff, I want to move on uh, to the fact that you are the owner of a fashion house in LA. But before we do that, um, any more steps to licensing for the, for the smaller business owner that we need to cover off? No, not really. Again, it, it's it's a pretty simple process, honestly. It's really like you have to figure out- it's, It sounds a lot simpler than when we started. Unfortunately, the challenge is that people think when they see a logo on a shirt that that's what licensing is. And sure, you can do some of that, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're really talking about brand awareness. So we're talking about brand expansion. In the case of a manufacturer, we're talking about getting on shelf because he may be trying hard to sell his crisps to a retailer. And all of a sudden they say, wait a minute, oh, you're going to do Nando crisps? Great. I love that. So that may be the hook to get them into that retailer. And the great thing is you can do what they call soft selling. So if you really think that Nando is interested, if I were you, I would get on the phone and talk to a retailer and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing flavored crisp. I could do Nando or I could do Sriracha or I could do, you know, our original beer brand, you know, and see who they really want. And they may come back and say, we want all three of them. And then you're like, great. I already have an order in my hand or I don't want any of them. And it's really important to do some market research before you go pay that guarantee because once you sign that contract, no matter what happens, you owe that money. That's awesome, buddy. Well, um, thank you for bringing licensing and, as you call it, invisible marketing to the masses. We're talking with Jeff Lottman. He is the owner of an agency called Global Icons. He's also the author of a new book 
called Invisible Marketing, but he's also a fashion raconteur uh, as he sits there in his black T-shirt and hoodie sipping on a tequila. You own Fred Siegel, Jeff, which um, I'm not sure there's a lot of awareness of that brand down here, but my quick research tells me that uh, this is a, a, a clothing brand that used to design for Elvis Presley, has been worn by Farrah Fawcett and Bob Dylan, and now you are the owner. Yeah, it's, it's an incredible brand. Next year's our 60th birthday, actually. Um, Fred Siegel and I were born at the same time, which I think is kind of funny and kind of interesting. And by the way, I never dressed like this before this. I've become, yeah, right. my kids have made me like, had to look cooler as like they got in different glasses and all this kind of stuff. I was a lot more dorky before. <laughs> yeah, okay. okay. Don't apologize. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm the least one to be, you know, critical of fashion. So it, it actually has actually been pretty good for me. But the thing that really attracted me is as a licensing agent, clients come and go, because if you're an agency, people come and go in the case, you know, Ford, so on and so forth. And more importantly, and what really kills you as an agent is they say to you, okay, we're going to agree. You can go do power tools. You can go do a lawnmower. And then you go out and you do all the work and you bring the deal. And they're like, mm, you know, management doesn't want to do it anymore. And, you know, basically with an agent, you eat what you kill. So if I don't do the deal, I haven't made the money because the way we work, we get a piece of the piece. So in the case of a that, you know, $50,000, we would keep a piece of that and the rest of it would go to the brand owner because we did the negotiating, we did the the finding of the deal would then help the packaging and so on and so forth. And the frustrating part is when deals die, we get nothing after spending a lot of time to make it happen. So I've wanted to buy a brand for a while and I looked at many and this really came to me and it was incredible for many things because the awareness is actually pretty amazing. If you're in fashion anywhere in the world, everyone knows Fred Siegel because we've been known as the, the curator of LA fashion and things that are really cool. So people have always come to Fred Siegel during that 60 years, starting with the rock and roll stars, the Beatles, Lennon, Elvis. I mean, again, he dressed Elvis for, for five years. Every piece of Elvis award was done by that. And even today, the amount of celebrities that come in our store, there's always celebrities. If you Google, you'll see the Kardashians and Julie Roberts and, 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 and. I mean, it's just, it's nonstop because we don't push that they're there because we don't believe in doing that, but it's really because we are this LA cool brand. We're always trying to find new designers and new developer designers and creators and what was interesting to me was I thought the brand could expand globally to places like obviously Australia. And um, we actually have been talking to someone about possibly opening a Fred Siegel down there. Um, and then at the same idea, we think the brand has expandability. So for example, we want to do Fred Siegel eyewear. We've done a really great job right in furniture. We're about to launch a line of a baby furniture, which is sort of funny that that actually came to us, but um, people love the whole idea of, of, of kids and family makes a lot of sense. So that's an area that we're really playing with. So it just, it was a great brand. It had tremendous possibilities and it's been a lot of fun, except for this COVID situation. Oh yeah, no doubt, no doubt. And Give the us protests, a sense. but we're not going to talk about those things. <laughs> you got a lot going on over in your part of the world. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Give us a sense of size. You've mentioned some incredible names who over the years have worn the Fred Siegel brand. I mean, how many retail outlets, what's the size of the e-commerce business? Yeah, just staff, just give us over here a sense of size. So right now we have we have one store in LA. That's our flagship store. Um, it's 14,000, well, 1,400 square meters um, as a store, which is a pretty big store on Sunset Boulevard. Uh, we have a store that's around 400 square meters in Malibu. We have a store in Switzerland. We're about to open up one in Korea. We're about to open up two in Canada, um, which has not been announced. We're about to open up one in Las Vegas. And then we're out really opening up more. And that's sort of one of the reasons also I bought it because I really felt like 
the brand can really grow. And we're talking to people in London, we're talking to people in Germany. And I really want to have, I don't want to have a lot of them because in my mind, half the fun of traveling is to find brands that you don't see anywhere else. And I hate the fact that you can go and you can find a Gap everywhere or a, you know, Chanel or, you know, whatever. You could find these brands everywhere and they become less important. So I think it's better to have less of them and make them really cool than it is to have a lot of them. Um, and that's sort of what we're going to really maintain. And the great thing about Fred Siegel is that we're constantly showing new brands and new creators and new designers. We do about 150 events a year, or we did, and I'm sure we will back again. And we're constantly launching new brands. We want to be that place that people can expect new things and to find the coolest things. And we really try to go do that. And it's it's exciting. It's great. And that's how come I learned to dress a little better than I did before. <laughs> Jeff, it sounds... Uh like an expensive purchase. Uh, I don't expect you to reveal the purchase price. Was it a fire sale? Did something happen to the brand that required the uh, the previous owners to sell it? Are you a billionaire? I don't know. Give me, a, let me in. No, I'm not a billionaire, but maybe Fred Siegel may turn me into one, but so far, far from it. But honestly, what happened was the family sold it to a friend of theirs who did an okay job. It's it's hard. It's hard to be in retail. And they brought an investment banker and then the guy, original guy moved out and the investment banker really wanted to get out because they're not retailers. So I was able to buy them out. I, they kept 10% and I own 90%. But it's, it's taking a lot. Our e-commerce was a joke. I mean, it was like they had a 25,000-hour Shopify. That was about it. And now, of course, we're pouring a lot of money into e-commerce because it's such a crit- critical part of your business. I mean, it really is so important because um, people experience your brand a lot online and we got to make sure we're really delivering that great experience. And now we're spending a lot of time talking about how do we have a really cool Fred Siegel type experience? Because when you come in our store, we have stylists, people that can say to you, Hey, let me show you this. Let me show you that. So how do we take that same experience and put that online? And we're working on that right now. So it's exciting. How are you managing uh, your involvement in global icons versus your new involvement with Fred Siegel? I'm guessing... Very good question. Yeah, well, okay. What's your very good answer? Well, luckily, I've had Global Icons for 23 years, and I have great people. Uh, Mike Gard and Bill McClinton, who have both been with me close to 20 years, are really then running the day-to-day operations. Honestly, as you probably get, I'm a strategy guy. I'm the, you know, I'm really good in that area. So when we pitch a new client, I'm there really helping to create the strategy, and these guys then really make sure that it happens. I get to like get involved at the beginning, and then someone else to do the hard work. Sounds like Fred Siegel's going to take more and more of your time. It's taking, and I'm working harder than I ever have in my entire life. No doubt. <laughs> there's two things that I, I look at it and go, there's two scary things there. One is fashion is fickle. <laughs> Clearly, Fred's got a, 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 a heritage, it's a heritage brand. There's a lot of brand cachet about it. People think very fondly of it, but it's still fashion and it is fickle. The other part of that is here you are opening up, you know, you've got shops in Sunset Boulevard, Malibu, Switzerland. Korea, all these all these places, yet retail is under threat. Maybe even more so, you know, thanks to COVID, thanks to the last couple of months. How do you address, am I, again, limiting belief, Timbo, or am I identifying things that are real and of a concern? No, you're 100% right. To begin with, in our store, we have two things. We have a lot of other brands that we carry that are not our brands. And one of the things that we're now starting to build is a Fred Siegel line of apparel. And very clearly, we are not going to be a fashion line. We're not going to go after, oh, this is the year of, of puce, or this is the year of mauve, or this is the color powder, or we're going to do fluffy shoulders. We're very much going to be a basic brand that sells certain things that are dependable and reliable and are the best. Like, obviously, athletic leisure. This is something that we live in. Um, also, um, sleepwear. 
there's going to be certain categories that we're really going to dive really deep and own. And those are categories that are more dependable, more reliable, less seasonal. And we're hoping that this is going to then reduce the cost and waste that can happen when you're a fashion retailer. So we have fashion brands, but Fred Siegel is not going to be a fashion brand. It's going to very much be a you know, a brand that's more of a, what they call classics. You are the strategy guy. You're the big picture guy. And you're clearly seeing the ability to extend the, the or stretch the Fred Siegel brand into, as you said, you know, kids wear furniture, other stuff. How do you, what work do you do? Or is it simply gut instinct do you do to establish that, yeah, it will absolutely fly as a kid's brand as, you know, everyone's dying to get a Fred Siegel couch. Like who said, how do you know? You know, it is definitely a gut feel. And of course, you know, I've been doing this for a long time with a lot of, a lot of brands, but you know, we make mistakes, not everything really works. And sometimes things like do incredibly well. And then also sometimes things don't work out well. You know, you try to minimize the the risk. Um, as a matter of fact, some of these stores that we're talking about opening up, these are actual licensed stores. So people are paying us to open up a Fred Siegel in those territories. We're going to help them you know, organize the staffing and training and what product they should be selling and how it should look. But they're going to be responsible for running that store in that territory. Because again, I'm reducing my risk. So I don't have to worry about putting in this global staff together right now to do something like that. Great story. I wish you all the luck with Fred Siegel. Can we buy Fred Siegel here online over there? Oh, you can definitely buy fredsiegel.com. We ship all over the world. Awesome, because our exchange rate's so strong against the US dollar, not. We're probably buying a T-shirt for like 800 bucks, but, um, you know, it fluctuates. <laughs> 1100 1100 Come on, 800 is too cheap. No. Yeah, I love it. So I wish you all the success with that. Thank you for opening up the world of licensing to the smaller business owners, um, particularly in Australia, but anyone who's listening in the world. And your book, uh, Invisible Marketing, Jeff, is available on all where all good books are sold, which is generally online these days. On Amazon, it's definitely the place that will be uh, after um, on Tuesday. Awesome, buddy. Well, I wish you all the best with it and, and thanks for joining us. Timbo, thanks so much. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, brother. Well, there you go, team. Brand licensing expert and owner of the Fred Siegel Fashion House brand, Jeff Lottman. Here's what grabbed my attention from that chat. Attention grabber number one. Think about how you could embrace licensing to grow your business by asking the key question, what are my customers also using that I can put my brand on? That might open a world of ideas to you. Attention grabber number two, use LinkedIn to find the right person within a business to speak to about licensing. If you're not using LinkedIn and you're in business, probably at least move there and open up a profile and get that going and then start using it to find the right people to connect with. Attention grabber number three, just have a go. I love speaking with business owners who go out on a limb and get involved in totally unrelated businesses. I think Jeff's purchase of the Fred Siegel brand sounds both brave and very inspired. I'll certainly be keeping an eye on what develops and maybe we can get him back on the podcast in a year's time to see what he is doing with Fred Siegel. That's what grabbed my attention. I would love to know what grabbed yours, but more importantly, just be sure to block out some time and implement it. It's Timbo's Monster Prize Draw. Yes, indeedly, doodly, it's time to reward another motivated listener for taking some serious marketing action. And today's winner is listener Scott Stewart of labdesign.com.au. 
And here's what Scott's got to say. G'day, Timbo. After both spending my early working life flying in the Air Force, my wife and I decided to move to Woolgulga on the North Coast to live our dream. With no Air Force base on the coast, we changed tack. We now run a passive house design and building science company. Wow, it's called Lab Design. What's that, you might ask? Exactly right, Scott, I did ask that in my little brain. We design homes that you can heat with a hairdryer and have air inside as clean as an operating theatre. That right there is an awesome pitch. I'm going to read that again. We design homes that you can heat with a hairdryer and have air inside as clean as an operating theatre. Jeez, I'll take one of those. I have developed that part of my pitch after listening to your 425th episode, which included the capstone pitch. Yes, I did. I described exactly how to create a great pitch, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that. Scott goes on to say, the importance of having a great pitch came about whilst in Portugal on a family trip. I was surfing near Peniche, Yes, that's how you spell it. I've never been to uh, pronounce it. I've never been to Portugal. When I started talking with a local in the surf who asked me what we did. Long story short, we are now working with him designing the accommodation component of an entire turnkey off-grid solution with his company that has designed an autonomous food growing system. Love doing deals out in the surf. Hopefully, after the travel bans have lifted, I will be able to go and assist with a prototype, which I know will be the first of many that will pop up around the world. I'll keep you posted. Scott Stewart, labdesign.com.au. Scott, awesome story. Uh, well done to you, more importantly, for listening and implementing. I think that's one of the great pitches that I've heard of recent times. As a result, you have won a full range of Liar Spirits, a hardcover copy of Jamie Mustard's book, The Iconist, a Bonjoro license, got vouchers for Sendal, Flora and Fauna and Tradies to spend. You got some Mr. Lee's Noodles promotion on this show and a backlink in the show notes, which is very good for your Google rankings. Everyone else, coming into the Monster Prize draw, send me an email, tim at timreed.com.au. That's R-E-I-D. Tell me one idea you've implemented from listening to this show. If I read it out on air, you win. Well, how'd you enjoy that? Is there an idea in there somewhere that you could actually go and implement to grow your business? I hope so. Drop me a line over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com forward slash 509. Just whack it in the comments. Let me know. There's plenty more where this came from on the Podcast One Australia app. Plus, you'll find my entire archive of episodes and blog posts over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. Now, next time... You and I are going to catch up with the husband and wife team, Andy and Angela Smith, whose Dr. Drip plumbing business hit great heights before crashing to the ground. And I mean crashing. They very candidly share their journey and how they've gone on to create something amazing in training other tradies to become successful business people. So this really is, it's sort of a riches to rags to riches story. If you're getting value from listening, then please let at least one business owner know a day about the Small Business Big Marketing Podcast, which was presented by me, Timbo Reid, and cleverly put together by the hilariously funny team at Podcast One Australia. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. Now get out there and take action. Listener.